Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm not a doctor. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. Yes, that's the brown line. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. And the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J., take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, June 12, 2020. Headlines. Oh, let me just take a look at this headline. Here we go. Police dismiss Trump's claims of Antifa plots. Yeah, we knew those were bogus claims. Uh, I could have told you that. Uh, as I do with all uh, bonus guests, I uh, ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, Ben. This is uh, Missing, the courtroom trial lawyer and managing partner of the law firm of Dwyer and Coogan, Jim Coogan. That's correct. <laughs> uh, you got it right. Uh, according to Robert Mueller, Jim Coogan is a regular here in the show. We uh, take apart legal issues of the day. And uh, as long as I've been in front of a microphone, Jim has been joining me. So I cannot, I just take a moment to tell you, Jim, how much I appreciate you uh, spending all this time with me and educating not only me, but our listeners about the legal issues of the day. And we have a bunch of them to go through. I'm going to list them. This is something I've been doing, new thing I've been doing on bonus shows, uh, Jim, to try to keep me from going off on tangents. This is my attempt to police myself, no pun intended. Uh, so I want to talk to you about police immunity, immunity uh, lawsuits uh, that are well, there's a lawsuit that could be at the Supreme Court level uh, right now, or it's making its way there. Uh, give us a, a Michael Flynn update and a William Barr update. And then what I really want to talk about, Trump and his waivers. Uh, Trump threatening to sue. Well, not really threatening to sue, but sending having his lawyer sending a threatening letter uh, to CNN about a poll they released. But Donald Trump and the law and the way Donald Trump uses lawyers to... Certain patterns have emerged, but uh, so we'll get to those. That'll be like the uh, dessert. Uh, I'll hold off on <laughs> on those uh, delicious topics. Let's talk about a pol police um, immunity and the whole issue of dealing with pr police brutality by getting uh, the Supreme Court to weigh in. Why don't you uh, sort of lay out the case that uh, is making its way to the Supreme Court? So among all of the things that have been brought up in the wake of the, the tragic Floyd death, uh, folks have become aware of so many legal things that surround police activity. And so, so one of the things that's been discussed in the media that you're talking about, there's a legal concept that protects police officers from individual liability in civil court. And it's really important to, to keep that distinction, to try to remember what what aspect of the law that you're dealing with when it comes to 
liability because there can be criminal liability. Officer Chauvin has been charged and now that charge has been up to a second degree murder charge. Um, but there's also the question of how does civil liability affect cops? And uh, as most people can imagine and put themselves in the shoes of anybody there, civil liability does affect people's behavior. So uh, police officers in the United States, particularly for the last 50 something years, the Supreme Court has uh, weighed in on the question of how much civil liability individual officers can face. And they've created this doctrine that's referred to as qualified immunity. So as, as you just referred to, Ben, you were, you're mentioning uh, activity at the Supreme Court level. There are actually several cases. Um, I think there's eight total cases that have been accepted on the Supreme Court's docket. So they haven't been, they, they're either in different stages of being briefed or, or, or will be briefed um, and haven't been officially argued. So there's no, no actual opinions coming forth. And since it's June, uh, presumably that means they'll be on next year's uh, Supreme Court docket for any potential oral arguments. But they, the, what it would mean, and what it means when, so if you're trying to read the tea leaves about what the United, Supreme, the United States Supreme Court might be doing, the fact that they accept the case suggests that they may be willing to revisit a particular doctrine or at least offer some further clarity about the bounds of a particular doctrine. And I know one of the things that I'm sure is on your mind is uh, qualified immunity when it comes to police officers is a very restrictive uh, kind of doctrine when it comes to the person trying to sue a police officer for uh, violating their civil rights and presumably causing some kind of injury or unreasonably detaining them uh, under the color of law, because that's the key here. Is they're acting as actors of the state. Um, in other and what what that has come to mean is that if you're going to sue an officer for doing something to you that's outside of the scope of the law and that they weren't authorized to do, you basically have to prove that what they did was exactly something that was previously ruled to be improper. Mm-hmm. So that means if there's any wrinkle, any twist in the facts, then they can say, well, there, this was not an explicitly illegal act. There's no notice for the officer to know that this particular thing was explicitly illegal, and therefore you can't hold them individually accountable. So how would that, for instance, apply in the case of George Floyd? If there was a civil civil suit against uh, Derek Chauvin? Yeah, so there you'd be, it would be the, the family of George Floyd. I know he's got children, so they would be, uh, the plaintiffs in a case, they could hire a lawyer and sue the police department, but also individually uh, Chauvin for the murderous act that he engaged in. And there could, what would happen is if researching the law, the defense attorneys who were defending him, um, presumably they would be lawyers that are hired by the police department, even if he was sued individually. But they would research and try to figure out, and this is something they do all the time because they're 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 in the business of defending police officers and police departments in those kind of civil lawsuits. Uh, if if they can find that there were cases that there's no similar case, they'll file a motion to dismiss that case, and the individual liability for Chauvin would probably be, I mean, unless they can find a case in in response to that, the plaintiff's lawyers would have the obligation to go say, well here's this case of so-and-so versus so-and-so. And in that situation, it was determined that 
uh, executing this particular restraint using a knee in this fashion with maybe some additional facts. It depends on how detailed it has to be. Uh, would say that to the judge and make the case that the, the case should not be thrown out. Uh, and uh, so if the Supreme Court rules to strike down uh, qualified immunity or to reduce its significance, what impact would that have? Like, for, so for instance, what could a plaintiff's lawyer do and how could he use or she use uh, lawsuits to get police to change their ways? Well, let, let me answer that question with a, just a, a comment to broaden it out just a little bit. Something that I want, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's always been clarified when I hear media coverage on this question over the last couple of weeks. And it is the following. In a situation where, let's say, an individual officer is not personally held liable, I keep saying personally, uh, for a death, let's say it's someone who's in custody, just like just like Mr. Floyd, that that family sues, the police department is still going to be obligated to indemnify that officer. They're still footing the bill. When when people hear reports in the Chicago area about the Chicago Police Department settling cases for an improper police chase, or an officer that fired his weapon illegally, or some other kind of injury that's that's caused by a violation inconsistent with someone's civil rights and a violation of their civil rights. Those bills are all being paid by the police department. So, for example, in the city of Chicago, they presently don't have a collective bargaining agreement, but they have one that expired in 2017, still calls for very explicitly that the police department indemnifies and defends, just like an insurance company would, each individual officer. So your question is what impact that would have. Yeah. It it actually doesn't it doesn't change the calculus very much for the for the party that's suing the officer and suing the police department. Ultimately, when you're representing that family or if the, you know the person's still alive, you're representing that individual. Your goal is to try to to put your case forward and make make the case that they should be entitled to appropriate compensation, something that you can achieve by possibly settling the case, but if you can't settle it, you go to trial and you put your case in front of the jury. But the real impact would be on the officers themselves. Because under the cer- per- present circumstances, people who uh, you know pay attention to the city's finances are aware of the fact that lawsuits for police misconduct have cost the city hundreds of millions of dollars in the last 10 years. Um, so if you changed the risk calculation and suddenly officers had to be concerned about whether or not they might personally have to be sued for something and that the city's not just going to pick up the tab no matter what, uh, it might affect their behavior. They may, be, they may have some incentive to be less reckless. Uh, and then it gets to the next question, which is, well, police officers don't have millions of dollars in the bank, so they would be obligated to or someone would be obligated to procure insurance for police conduct. And that's where you, that's something that you don't really have presently. Those settlements for CPD, those are being paid by the city of Chicago from general revenue, from taxpayer dollars. Uh, Even if the city got some additional insurance policies or something like that to pay some of it, you know, it's not like they're doing individual calculations of whether a particular officer is a high-risk officer, a low-risk officer, just like a 16-year-old driver is going to pay more insurance premiums than a, than a 52-year-old driver who has a, no history of accident, that kind of thing. 
So you're telling me that if a police officer uh, has a record of beating up uh, in, uh, civilians and the matter comes, he, he comes, he, he's sued, uh, the, he would have what he would personally have to pay for insurance himself to uh, protect himself in the, in, in the event of a lawsuit? That ends up being yet another collective bargaining issue. So if your CBA, whichever city we're talking about, whichever police department, if that CBA covered, well, I mean, absolutely. If this changed, that would be something that would be covered in those negotiations. And at that time, uh, you know, the, the push pull would be, okay, if the city's going to pay for these premiums, then here's going to be a set of qualifications and they might reserve the right to terminate officers because they can't procure insurance for them. For example, uh, if the individual officers were obligated to do it, then I imagine that would affect compensation. You know, the city might have to pay them more because they have to go pay for it, or they can come up with some kind of shared interest thing where both parties, both the individual officers pay into it. You know, almost like where employers are obligate their employees to kick into their health insurance mm-hmm. or to buy their own disability insurance where the employer pays for part of it, but the employee pays for part of it. So those, the way that you share the premium burden subject to negotiation, it's going to depend on the culture of the negotiations that are happening. And, uh, but I guess the key would be once you, if you did have a reason for officers to need that insurance, suddenly the issue's on the table and you've opened yourself up to a more thoughtful analysis of the types of risks that a particular officer is exposing the, the city, the police department, the taxpayers, everybody to, uh, by being a bad officer, for example. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a secret. There are officers that are more problematic than others because of what would one would assume are character issues about that individual officer. Uh, the, the, I'm not, you'll never hear me, uh, offer unqualified praise for insurance companies. But one of the things that they have the capacity to do and one of the things they, they do best and specialize in is quantifying risk. So if you, so one thing that would almost necessarily happen is you would end up having actuary actuaries and bean counter types coming in and looking at officer performance statistics and uh, the kind of uh, claims that are made and, and complaints that are filed and whether those were shown to be substantiated. Not to mention, one would imagine they'd be examining the claims process. Where, yeah. you know, if, if no, if 100% of claims are always unsubstantiated in a particular city, uh, that might suggest that that process is flawed and not a good proxy for whether those officers are actually. Uh, doing things that are breaking the rules and creating potential liability or not. So uh, you'd end up having a lot more auditing of these places, which, I mean, this is one of the problems that the city of Chicago has had for a long time. They had to disband their uh, accountability board and replace it with the present version of uh, police accountability, the civilian group that's trying to determine whether or not situations warrant um, fines, penalties, and suspensions and so on. One of the, the counter arguments that I hear all the time uh, when the issue of immunity and police officers is raised is that, well, if you hold uh, police directly accountable uh, for the consequences of their action from a civil standpoint, anyway, uh, that will 
be a deterrent on uh, law enforcement. I've heard this from law and order types for a long time. Uh, so a lot of the things that they would claim it would be a deterrent to, I would hope they would deter, like just randomly beating up civilians or rounding them up, et cetera, and so forth. But this is the political argument, the counter-political argument that's been raised by um, Republicans going back forever uh, to the days of Nixon, uh, Jim. And... Uh, so when you weigh that in, uh, you weigh that f into this uh, situation. What is the likelihood, in your opinion, that the Supreme Court, as it's currently constituted, would rule against the police in an immunity lawsuit? Well, I mean, the first thought I just want to offer is having a badge is not a license to assault people. So, you know, generally speaking, this is the kind of thing that you frame in, in the context of personal responsibility, uh, you know, having financial deterrence to bad activity, that's kind of an American principle. I mean, it's one of the bedrock principles of our entire legal system. Lawyers have to get malpractice insurance because uh, they have plenty of incentives not to do bad things for their clients, but yet, regardless of whether those incentives already exist, uh, there should also be financial compensation for when someone is accused of that and it can be proven. Doctors need malpractice insurance. Accountants need it. Engineers get it. Uh, businesses have business insurance for when they do something negligent. Uh, so I think that the, the response to the claim that this might uh, deter officers from, I mean, deter them from what? Just recklessly wielding a gun and deciding, well, hey, you know, the, the actors are picking up the bill for this anyway. So I think the, the response is, they're supposed to follow these rules to begin with and having an additional reason that they might actually see their premiums go up, see some, some reduction in their salary because the city has to pay more premiums, whatever the reason might be, there should be accountability for people's actions just because they're police officers doesn't mean they shouldn't be accountable. Um, everybody else is supposed to be, unless they have waivers, but we'll get to that later. Right. Yeah. Um, so as far as the Supreme Court's, the likelihood of them changing their jurisprudence on this, there is an interesting smoke signal out there that some conservatives, including Justice Clarence Thomas, actually do have, they have, he has specifically voiced criticisms of this doctrine in the past, that it's in, in some of the same ways that I've just described, that it's kind of inconsistent with the general you know, values and, and uh, personal responsibility concepts that affect any, any person, any economic actor, anybody doing any activity. Um, and so there's the possibility, I mean, any kind of decision that shifts such a substantial piece of the law would require a coalition of uh, conservatives and, and liberal justices on the Supreme Court. I think it's unlikely that all five uh, conservative justices would sign off on this uh, because it's kind of it has some competing uh, conservative principles: personal responsibility on one hand, and uh, support for law enforcement and heavy-handed military-style police enforcement uh, is also a, a modern conservative American principle. So, uh, I don't know if, if Justice Thomas. It would be odd if it was Justice Thomas and the four liberal justices that signed off on a case that said uh, we're we're pulling back on qualified immunity and uh, we're, we're going to say that illegal acts and not just specific 
really, really narrow definitions of illegal acts are actually going to be uh, the basis for personal accountability for cops. I mean, I'd, I'd say it's less than a 50-50 chance, but when they've taken up this many cases, one thing that, that I think, like I said, there's eight cases that are presently on their docket, it also suggests that there, there's a broader problem. Yeah. They don't hear that many cases to begin with. So to have eight of the same type, um, it's as they do their deliberations and they're sitting around trying to decide these cases, they're, they're, they are by def, they're, by that they are made aware of the fact that this is happening in a lot of places. There's a lot of questions about the scope of this immunity, uh, and and it could occur to them that if the immunity is too broad, if the protections for the cops is is not striking the right balance, that they should change it. I I'm gonna uh, I think you know what I'm gonna say, but I'm gonna just. Uh... Uh, jump in right now to draw a distinction between what I, uh, what you just sort of outlined, which is like a constitutional principle that a conservative judge might have, for, as opposed to a political rhetoric that a political party that nominates the judge for the bench would have. So the constitutional principle uh, that you just uh, laid out is one where of personal individual responsibility and that the law should not be crafted in such a way as to protect people from the consequences of their misbehavior. I don't think any conservative person would uh, think the law should be designed in such a way to encourage irresponsible behavior. Uh, that's just like a, against the bedrock theme of conservatism. On the other hand, the political rhetoric of the Republican Party in this case, since the days of Richard Nixon, is that uh, we should get tough on lawbreakers if they're in the streets. And so to do so, you got to give more power to the police and you have to protect the police from any consequences of their action. So there's a complete inconsistency between like the bedrock pol uh, constitutional principle that you were uh, talking about. Like, with the, like we're going to get into uh, Michael Flynn, uh, but, you know, Michael Flynn, all, these, all, all Republicans are saying, oh, my God, he's got constitutional rights that should not be violated. These are enshrined in the Constitution. Law and order has gone too far. They violated the individual's rights, and yet they don't see those same rights for just ordinary citizens, ordinary black citizens, I should say. So that's why I'm a little dubious uh, that Clarence Thomas and any of those other conservative judges will join forces uh, with a Kagan or Sotomayor or a Ginsburg on this matter. Well, I hope that happens, but I'm a little dubious. Do you follow what I just said, Jim? I think you've got every reason to be dubious. Uh, I, I hope I wasn't. I hope I didn't make it sound like I thought that this was going to happen, but I, <laughs> I know that's not what you're saying. Yeah. But, you know, I think that it has to be, well, we should also remind listeners that this is a legal construction. It's a court, it's a Supreme Court created legal doctrine. So it is not the product of any specific statute or constitutional protection for police officers uh, that exists. And therefore, things like this that are the product of Supreme Court cases and Supreme Court decisions can be completely displaced with new legislation. Yes. So if Congress passes a law that says we, we're proscribing, we're narrowing the kind of protections that are, that exist, or we're just eliminating all of the prior cases are now, you know, out of the, out of the way. And we're redefining what it means to have any kind of immunity for individual police officer liability because I don't think there should be zero immunity. I mean, obviously that, that, that they, or that they, they can't just be charged with 
regular negligence necessarily, because obviously every single case with cops, if they're physically touching someone, could be considered an assault. But I, but there are many police quote unquote assaults that are necessary because they're arresting someone who just doesn't want to be arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there is a uh, bill in the House right now, and been put forth by Ayanna Presley, I think Justin Amash, the the Lone Ranger, um, non-Republican Republican, are two of the main uh, authors of the bill. Now, do I think that's going to pass from Mitch McConnell's Senate? Uh, I doubt it. I think that the, I think that you know this is more a political question. I, I think that the Republican Party, McConnell in his own race, would rather frame this issue as Republicans are supporting law and order and the police. And there's no way that they would sign on to that, but it's out there, and and and, and I, I am quite certain that they couldn't pass this bill without uh, having a veto-proof majority, because I'm sure that the president would veto it. I think he's actually said that he would yeah. uh, if this ever passed. But you know, it's June, so if he's no longer the president in January, then that might be an opportunity to pass this by legislation, and uh, it's an end around. And it really would would render irrelevant whatever the Supreme Court wants to do with it, because anything that they did pass, they couldn't say that that's unconstitutional unless for some other reason it is unconstitutional. But um, there's there's no there's no enumerated constitutional right to immunity for law enforcement. I mean, it's a, maybe just one quick reminder: the police force as we presently know it, there was nothing like that back in the 1790s. So they wouldn't have even really dreamt that, that this could be, uh, that, that there would be this kind of interaction between officers and citizens. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's switch over to uh, the case of Michael Flynn uh, and William Barr's role in that case, Attorney General William Barr's role in that case. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this, uh, in the, well, we've talked a lot about this over the last couple of years, one of our favorite topics, uh, Flynn and Barr. Uh, what's the latest? As, as I was uh, coming on the air today, uh, there was a story breaking about Michael Flynn. Uh, what's the latest? What's the update on Michael Flynn's case? There is a quick update. This is, of course, patient zero in the Trump administration infection of the criminal justice process in the United States of America because uh, Flynn's Flynn's misconduct happened before Trump even became president and, and was sworn in in January. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is the case of illegal or at least questionable contacts between Flynn and Sergei Kislyak, the Russian representative, that he then lied to the FBI about. He was charged with those lies. He confessed to those lies. He pled guilty to them in court twice under oath. And as people probably can recall, since uh, in the last few months, Mr. Uh, Flynn retained new counsel and Attorney General Bill Barr had one of his, uh, I guess we'll say, sympathetic attorney generals intervene in the case. And in a case where, again, a criminal defendant pled guilty twice, the Department of Justice decided that they were going to drop the case. That suddenly a case that was all, it was all over other than just the sentencing process. Uh, that that they had no interest in in prosecuting anymore. So when they brought that to the attention of the judge, uh, Emmett Sullivan, the federal judge overseeing the case, a a motion like that to dismiss the case by the prosecution still has to be ruled upon. Uh, And immediately Judge Sullivan, who had seen all the evidence and had heard the uh, the guilty pleas from uh, former General Flynn, 
was very skeptical about what in goodness name was going on. So um, he did something that was very unusual, which was to appoint a former federal judge and a former federal prosecutor, uh, John Gleason, was appointed as sort of like a special counsel or a friend of the court to review what's going on. Because you have a, a strange dynamic here. You have the defense attorneys for Flynn saying, of course we want this dismissed. And now you have the prosecution also saying, yes, judge, we want this dismissed. So now there's really no advocate anymore for the position of, hey, this guy already pled guilty to this crime, so shouldn't the judge just sentence him already? Yeah. Um, and Sullivan's rightly skeptical about what's going on here because the the justification for dropping the case is it's basically the, the Department of Justice trying to rewrite history and, and reimagine the FBI investigation and inter- interrogations as if they were entrapping Flint, who's about as, uh, I mean, he's, he's someone who shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be possible to entrap him. You know, he, was, he worked in the Defense Intelligence Agency, he actually ran the place. So the whole thing was preposterous on its face. And Gleason actually issued a report a few days ago outlining just how unusual and ridiculous the, the, the supposed justifications are for dropping this case. And then, in yet another strange twist, uh, the, the defense attorneys in, in the case had filed kind of an interlocutory appeal to, see, to get this entire uh, friend of the court special uh, advice from Gleason thrown out. So I think that hearing was actually this afternoon. Uh, or in the middle of the day today, and a three-judge panel, the D.C. Circuit, heard that case to make a decision as to whether or not they will stop the process right where it is, and essentially that would mean that the judge would be forced to enter the dismissal. So from what I read in media coverage about that hearing, the the, the appellate judges were skeptical about why they should be intervening at this point, Um, because obviously if, if the dismissal is denied and the judge decides the sentence plan, then they can come back on an appeal anyway. Yeah. But my hope in reading through this is, uh, you know, you certainly have a very credible, I mean, Gleason was chosen for a reason. He's got a lot of gravitas. He's got a lot of weight. Um, you know, the well-regarded federal judge with a, a long history of prosecuting mobsters and, and, and a very well-respected legal voice. And his legal voice is loudly saying, this is a joke. So, um, it would certainly give Judge Sullivan some additional ammunition to decide to disregard the Department of Justice's request to have the case dropped and enter judgment on the, the guilty pleas. So he could do that. Uh, Judge Sullivan could uh, take Gleason's reporter findings and say, all right, I am uh, disregarding the, the Justice Department's request to drop the case and I'm going to give him, I'm making this up, two years in, in prison. I just made up that, that, that sentence. Uh, Judge Ben just gave a, a sentence. He could declare that then. Judge uh, Ben, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the hang him high judge. So uh, he could impose, I mean, this is, uh, just follow on this, uh, Jim. If he does that, then of course, what, what, would, what would be the next step? Would Flynn join forces with the Justice Department, his former prosecutors, to appeal uh, that sentence from Judge Sullivan? Right. Like, right, to add another weird twist, of course, if his defense attorneys were appealing it, 
then instead of their normal position as prosecutors on an appeal from a criminal defendant, the Department of Justice presumably would be filing a, a brief in support of his position. Yeah. Uh, or no brief, although given the way that the bar Department of Justice behaves, I would assume it would be a brief in support. So then you might have amicus briefs. That's what you know lawyers can file those from outside groups in an appeal where they think you know some special interest has a an interest in the case, some advocacy group. Um, Judge Gleason could file something else, I guess, if that's where he was at that point. Um, but you know what else would happen, of course, is once there's a conviction and a sentence, um, then the president would almost certainly pardon. Uh, yes, uh, I see your. Well, yeah, that would be the ultimate uh, insult uh, to, to this whole proceeding. I was imagining, envisioning this thing getting dragged on all the way to the Supreme court. And then we'd have a, this is my hope, a, a change at the white house, a new justice department. And just imagine this, a whole new set of lawyers coming into court in, uh, late January of 2021, uh, Jim, to argue, oh, we've, we've, we've reversed ourselves again, or not, you know, the D Department of Justice. Yeah. And now we're uh, with Judge Sullivan. We're actually asking him to increase the penalty. I can imagine if, if, if uh, Trump doesn't do the pardoning, um, that scenario unfolding. It seems like it would be more politically uh, useful for him to issue a pardon sometime in September or around the whatever the Republican National Convention, sometime around then, where he could trumpet about how he's thwarting the I don't know the miscarriage of justice carried out by his own department. I don't know how you, however, he would say that in, in MAGA speak. Yeah. But yes. Well, th now we're into the political ram uh, end of things, and, and it's clear to me that from watching his behavior over the last month, um, and we'll get into the waiver situation because this gets added too, but that Donald Trump has decided that the he's going, he's going down the way he came up, and that means appeal to MAGA. He calls it MAGA, so I'm just using his word for his followers. He, he, in one of his quotes, he, he called it MAGA, uh, and that the notion of moving to the center, in his case, that would mean moving to the left, to win over undecided voters, which is the traditional strategy uh, that politicians follow when they're in a general election, he's throwing it out the window. We saw that with his attitude about uh, the unrest following George Floyd. We saw that with that bizarre procession uh, that uh, he and William Barr took from the White House to the church where he held the Bible in the hand. Uh, we're seeing that with his tweets and his declarations. So yes, to your uh, point, Jim. I would not be surprised if Donald Trump were were to think this is the way to win re-election, to pardon Michael Flynn, and to do it on you know like you said September or so as we're getting closer to the election to fire up his base. P from a political standpoint, I don't think that will work for him. That will look like lawlessness, um, and it would it would just. I think it would really undermine him with independent voters, but that's a political issue, not a legal one. You follow me? Well, yes, and that's why I refer to it as patient zero for the corruption of the Department of Justice, the, the judicial system, uh, and the criminal justice process in this country. Because it started right from the beginning, yeah. and it's been going on the entire time. It's been 
very strange at so many different points. Even before Flynn brought in Fox TV lawyers to uh, start claiming that this was some kind of entrapment conspiracy, even before that point, there was bizarre things that happened with this case where Judge Sullivan wasn't ready to enter a sentence because he looked at the record and thought that the Department of Justice should have been charging with treason. That, that was on the record. I'm not exaggerating that word, uh, which is a pretty big deal for a former general. So, yeah, it, it would be fitting, I guess, in a, in a perverse way that this continues to be so destructive of anybody's faith in, in the system because obviously the fix is in for Flynn one way or the other because he's Trump's guy, because that's just how he treats the administration of justice. Now, uh, the other thing, is this, is this possible too? Let's say if Donald Trump's advisors admonish him and say, Donald or whatever they call him, boss, don't do this before the election. This will only hurt you with swing voters if you do it before the election. Is it possible for him to do it after the election if he's lost? You know what I'm saying? Like in December when he's a lame well, duck? you've seen it before. We've all seen it before where presidents on their way out once mm-hmm. they've been uh, beaten in an in a, uh, after their first term take that opportunity to pardon some friends and neighbors yeah. or even after their second term where they're by definition, like they're a lame duck because they're not running again, regardless, they just wait till December because it's the holidays and nobody's paying attention to, uh, to pardon all manner of people, some very well-deserving and some political criminals who shouldn't have been pardoned. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's right. I'm thinking of Casper Weinberger's name pops into my mind from, uh, can't remember which president uh, pardoned him uh, as a lame duck. Bush. Right. What's First that? Bush, right? Yes, I think it was uh, very good. Yeah, I think it was that's George correct. Herbert Walker. <laughs> I think it was George <laughs> ben, Herbert. That's a, that's a good transition <laughs> into Barr if you want to cover that now because he was at the heart of that. All right, uh, William Barr update. Uh, <laughs> I was going to move on to waivers, but maybe William Barr is uh, advising that. It be quick. I All mean, right, give me a William. It's really more of the theme. Yeah. Uh, what's the latest on William Barr's uh, wrongdoings? Well, I think that this is, it's not new news at this point, but pe- people have seen, you just referred to it, that bizarre spectacle of the president uh, juggling a Bible in front of a church that had that had suffered some uh, fire damage. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's just more of a piece with the, the fears that I have about, the corruption of the Department of Justice, but also of the government overall, uh, because it's, it seems like the theories that that Attorney General Barr subscribes to uh, basically are that he's pro-police power, pro-using the military within the, the borders of our own country, and basically inflicting justice as he sees it upon the populace rather than administering justice and being a, a, um, a guide and someone who's trying to, to make sure that justice is evenly and fairly administered in the country. So there were all sorts of terrible things that, that were shown where he's denying whether or not there's a chemical agent in pepper spray or, and then of course, denying that pepper spray was even used. So why would you have to make a distinction about whether it was chemical or not, if it didn't even happen? Um, and, and as you and I talked about, he has this, he's got this um, secret weapon 
which is his style of just being so overtly boring <laughs> when he describes anything. Yeah. Uh, with with yeah. with mush, you know, there's mushy words. There's there's kind of this this sort of uh, casting off to the side as he's sort of talking about something like, well, you know, this of course is just whatever. Uh, and generally speaking, he's he's he will very willingly mischaracterize something that is provably false, uh, and it doesn't make any difference how um, obvious the lie is. You can go back to the clip of him trying to weasel out of, a, of Senator Kamala Harris's questions about whether he'd been asked to engage in in uh, prosecutions of the president's enemies. That was that was weasel speak and mushy language and it carried through to last week's explanation of this, uh, this disgusting display of using United States military, uh, power over the Capitol, you know, low flying, uh, helicopters being employed with, you know, using the helicopters themselves were equipped with red crosses, which is deceptive and a violation of the Geneva conventions, I think. And, and this, uh, attack, with uh, on on peaceful protesters, I mean, the, it's the First Amendment for a reason. Uh, the it's not just your freedom of speech, but your re- your freedom to peaceably assemble. Um, and the, and all of the media reports and all of the eyewitnesses there were very clear about just how peaceful and reasonable and nonviolent all the folks that were standing in front of the White House were before they blew them away with tear gas for a preposterous campaign stunt. Yeah. So, you know, just being when when someone which, by the way, he's the attorney general, he's not supposed to be in charge of any troops anywhere, regardless of what bureau they work for or whether they're Secret Service or anything else. That's an aside. But being in the service of something like that and being willing to uh, inflict something upon the citizens that he's sworn out to protect and the Constitution that he's sworn out to protect is really all you need to know. And it's a dark and very, very serious violation. And I don't even think there's been enough coverage. I don't think enough attention has been paid to it. Maybe because it's just yet another step in a long cascade. Uh, maybe just because there's just so many things to cover, but uh, it's bad. Yeah. No, I, I, I guess I could have just said that from the beginning. It's yeah, bad. no, it, it. I'm glad you took the time uh, to bring that back because, I mean, there were so, so many, there's so many violations of, propriety uh there's so many inconsistencies on parade you talk about the first amendment this is and you've heard me on this this is one of my favorite themes uh that republicans only seem to believe in the first amendment when it comes to themselves and they they want the right to say what they want about other people and they when they, whenever there's a blowback to some of the insulting things they'll say they'll say they're taking away our liberties to speak our minds what kind of country is this and then but when it's other people who are protesting against them, then they throw the First Amendment out the window. And this is a perfect case of it. Colin Kaepernick would be another instance um, where, you know, they felt he should be punished uh, for uh, taking a knee. So, yeah. And then there's the other point. I don't know. That was a political event. Donald Trump crossing from the White House to the church uh, to stand in front of the camera with the Bible was a political event. That was Donald Trump using that moment to advance 
his campaign. It had nothing to do with law and order. It had nothing to do with protecting people. It was Donald Trump's notion of what he could do to help Donald Trump get reelected. I don't think it's going to help him get reelected. I think it's going to work against him. But that's Donald Trump's uh, view of the world. For the attorney general to join him in that, Jim, in, a, in what is a blatantly political act, is also a serious violation of what the attorney general's role is. That's how I saw it when it went down. What do you think? It's the kind of thing that happens in a failed state. And if we're not, I mean, I hope we're not already there, but that's the kind of thing that happens in a place where then the attorney general is a henchman to fix an election. And whatever parts of government still function are still are, are basically under the thumb of the parts that are, are just doing whatever they want in service of the boss. Mm. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I know that sounds extreme, but, uh, these are the, they have the levers of power in their hands. So, and we've seen how difficult it is for any oversight to occur. The Senate can't do it because they're crippled by the fact that it's, it's run by Mitch McConnell and none of those committee. Well, for a while, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee was trying to do some oversight, and then they've now sidelined um, Burr because he got himself caught trying to selling stocks with insider information. Um, and that, that was at least one subcommittee that did legitimate reporting and actually assigned the blame where it was, that, that Russians actually did interfere in the 2016 election with the explicit purpose of getting Donald Trump elected. So besides that, every other especially since 2018, uh, it's all been toothless. And uh, the House of Representatives can only do so much. All right, let's, uh, let's close it down with my favorite legal story of, of the week. I took such delight in this. Uh, Donald Trump has said, announced that he's going to go back in the campaign trail, that he doesn't think COVID-19 is a serious threat to the health and well-being of America anymore. He's time to get the economy uh, going again. Uh, we don't need to practice any kind of uh, social distancing protocols. We don't need to wear masks. He's uh, actually moving his speech uh, from at the Republican convention uh, from North Carolina to Florida, where the uh, leaders of Florida have welcomed into Jacksonville. No social distancing. He's made it clear he wants every seat taken. He uh, does not want to have to look out into an audience where there's empty seats. He needs that ego uh, gratification, Jim Coogan, of seeing a jam-packed arena cheering him on. So he said that. It's okay. We're free uh, from the virus. So his opening act will be uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma next week. Uh, and by the way, uh, one last thing. Everybody who shows up, every attendee has to sign a waiver has to sign a waiver uh, protecting Donald Trump's campaign for being sued if they get COVID-19. I tell you what, every time I think about Trump doing something that's just so brazen and just uh, full of chutzpah, I, I don't think he could trump it. This one takes the cake. So let's just start with uh, the question of the waiver itself. Is it valid? I mean... Jim, this is your specialty. You go into court all the time, uh, a plaintiff's lawyer. Is signing a waiver like this a valid defense uh, from a lawsuit filed by someone who gets ill? Well, I'm glad you characterized it as his opening act. Like it is just, it is a stage, a traveling stage show, right? So that's, that's perfect. Um, 
I would also say I'm, I'd really be curious to know if part of the opening act is going to include him being swabbed right there on the stage just to rub it in that uh, he's the only one who can get immediate testing anytime he wants. So, uh, yeah. so look at this, suckers. Yeah. Uh, you all signed a waiver, and I, I got I got doctors following me around everywhere I go because I'm the president. Um, so waivers are very interesting. I, being the plaintiff's attorney in almost every case, I'm generally against the notion of being able to waive responsibility and liability and having enforcing folks to uh, it, to sign documents before you engage in something because you know there's always a there's always a mild level of coercion with this kind of thing waivers that people sign before they go into surgery waivers before they they use some kind of a like a trampoline or some kind of public uh, uh, activity that they might be engaging in waivers that are on your ticket to a Bears game that you don't even know are there. Um, so, so I'm philosophically very skeptical about these things. I did see, and by the way, you, you, just to illustrate the lengths that I go to help contribute to this show, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at a Trump Pence website today just for you, Ben, to read exactly the language that they have on this uh, sign up page for the Tulsa rally. And you're correct. I heard your observation. I think it was in the show today about it does not name Donald Trump individually, which yes. is kind of an interesting omission. Um, but I think one thing that I would say about this particular issue, well, there's two things. One, just from a legal perspective, uh, it's probably completely unnecessary um, because you would anybody, and this is actually a very hotly discussed topic, as you can imagine, nationwide for business owners and for all kinds of other people um, trying to figure out how to navigate the next few months of, of opening up the world. What if you, you know, can you get sued? What's your, what is anybody's legal liability for someone getting exposed to COVID-19 and, and having a, a serious medical outcome? So generally speaking, what I remind people about is if you were a business owner and you were worried about people coming in, if someone does get sick, it would be almost an insurmountable challenge to be able to prove that the sickness was directly caused by that particular exposure. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, unless you teleport to the Tulsa arena by some kind of Star Trek technology, mm -hmm. even the fact that you got in a car and interacted with anybody or were on a bus or stood on a street corner to get picked up by your friend beforehand, like it would be, you, it would be really hard for you to say conclusively that that was the only place that you were exposed to someone. And when do you get tested to even confirm that you have it? Some people end up going to hospitals and they don't do the testing until after they've already been admitted with respiratory symptoms or something like that. So um, I think it's generally speaking going to be very difficult to prove exposure in a case where you're trying to sue for that. Uh, a quick aside, that's something that actually uh, I'm, I'm proud to see uh, the state of Illinois enacted for for workers, that in the workers' compensation system, there's there's the occupational disease exposure aspect of work injuries. So you can be working somewhere and be exposed to, you know, something that you inhaled or, or a virus. And if you're then sick afterwards, now you can't work and you do all the normal things in a workers' comp case. They passed a law that was just signed by Governor Pritzker, I think last week, that creates a presumption <clears throat> for, for, for frontline workers so that they can, so it could be easier to do what I was just describing, mm -hmm. because proving that is probably going to be really tough 
And uh, if an employer, just their, if their insurance decided to just say, hey, look, you can't prove this. So we're not paying for the enormous hospital bill that you just had because you had to go to intensive care. Um, good luck. And, yeah. and then you had to go through your, or, or you don't even have insurance because it's the kind of job that doesn't have. So that's a legal comment that I have on this, that it's probably kind of superfluous. Um, but it is amusing that a president who is so confident about his uh, vanquishing this dastardly Chinese disease that his campaign would find it necessary to shield themselves from liability if anybody got sick by, I don't know how they're going to, how would they even get sick, Ben? I didn't think that COVID-19 even existed in this country anymore. I haven't heard heard the president talk about it in about two weeks, right? So, uh, So it's really... You know, he his his use of the legal system has always been abusive. It's, it's like his his go to is to abuse the process of suing people, counter suing people, and uh, as you know, even if you know whether even if you don't take the deep dive through every thousands of thousands of litigations that he's been a party to, um, it's usually the threat yeah. more than the follow through with him. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That, and that's like that other uh, news story that emerged the last week where uh, his lawyer th- sent a vaguely threatening letter to CNN after CNN ran a, a story about a poll that showed uh, Biden pulling ahead of Trump. And it was it was almost as though they were threatening them with legal action for what? Running a poll? And but yeah, that's uh, that's classic Trump. But I, Ben, I'd like to think I have at least some creativity as an attorney. Yeah. Uh, if you ask me, how do you sue a poll? <laughs> I, it, would, it might be tough for me to come up with a, with a way to sue a poll uh, or publishing a poll, unless you knew that it was false, which of course nobody could ever prove. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the bluster. It's the I'm tougher than you. It's the I'll go hire people and those people will threaten you with lawsuits and uh, I'll sue you for $200 billion, you know, the big headline number, and six months later, nothing happens. Yeah. Or the thing is, or, 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 or there's the, the opposite Trump, which is, I never, I never settle. I always fight. And, you know, two years later, there's, there's a bunch of money paid with non disclosure agreements and settlements are paid. Yeah. Um, so it's always the bluster and never the follow through. And um, he's, he's, he always has used the, the, the legal system as if it's just an extension of his his media presence. Well, I'll be curious uh, to see how many people signed this waiver uh, in Tulsa uh, and Jacksonville. Don't forget that one. He's uh, coerced the state of Florida into inviting him to have a rally uh, in Jacksonville at the time of the Republican convention. He, again, he wants the, the arena filled. He doesn't want masks. He doesn't want any kind of social distancing. Uh, so really, uh, Jim, it's it's such a bizarre contradiction where he is demanding that all protocols be thrown out the window on the grounds that we don't need them and then getting people uh, to <laughs> sign away their rights to pursue him uh, if they get sick. It's such a blatant violation. It's a complete hypocrisy. Uh, it just always baffles me how anybody could vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I guess we could. It's a, it's a- it's his brand. I mean, he demands loyalty, and he sells anybody out in a heartbeat, drop of a hat. All right, well, we'll close it with this a blast from the past. I used it on the show earlier today, so you already heard it once. 
if Michael Cohen was still Trump's lawyer, no way would that document, uh, that waiver document, have failed to mention Donald Trump. He wouldn't there have left know. Donald Trump unprotected. Uh, <laughs> the great Michael That's Cohen. His, hey, he's the he's the original bag man, or one of them. He, he's one of them. Jim Coogan, thank you so much. Stay safe. We'll be talking to you real soon, all right? Good to talk to you, Ben. Thanks very much. Jim Coogan, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.